there is nothing that prevents you from getting both flu and COVID at the same time. And that may be a very serious complication, even for people who don't have pre-existing conditions. Welcome to 20 Minute Health Talk, where some of the brightest minds in healthcare break down the latest news and developments. I'm alongside my co-host, Chris Gazuski, and our special guest, Dr. Mark Jarrett. This is our first podcast and hopefully one of many more to come. Uh, Dr. Jarrett is Northwell's Deputy Chief Medical Officer and Chief Quality Officer and has been at the forefront of the COVID-19 pandemic even really before it hit New York. Dr. Jarrett, welcome. Thanks for being here. Tell us what's the latest right now in COVID. Thank you uh, for inviting me. So the latest in COVID is in New York, we're doing very well. Uh, we are certainly uh, probably the lowest or one of the lowest uh, rates of prevalence in the country. But unfortunately, other parts of the country have flared up, resulting in hospitalizations and unfortunately deaths. Uh, but as I said, because of the uh, New Yorkers who have really towed the line in terms of doing all the restrictions, uh, we've managed to go from a horrible peak down to a reasonable uh, low level of prevalence. Yeah. And um, what, what would you say the main thing is, is why that has worked in New York? Is it as simple as the social distancing, the washing of hands, the wearing of masks? It's a combination of everything. It is clearly you know, wearing masks and the appropriate masks and social distancing help. Uh, but it's also the fact that there have not been large gatherings in, in general, uh, many people are working remotely, taking them both out of public workspaces, but also meaning that they're not taking public transportation. They're not, you know, gathering together, waiting at a bus stop. Uh, so all those things together, plus unfortunately closure of uh, many of the things we enjoy from museums to restaurants uh, to gymnasiums have, uh, you know, they've helped a tremendous amount. And I think it's a combination of all, not any one factor. Yeah. And, you know, you just mentioned um, school and I know Chris has got young kids and this is a scary time for parents. Um, so um, you get large crowds. We talked about right now, large crowds, keeping them smaller. We're going to have large crowds in schools. That's true. I mean, if you think about it, where everywhere else we're trying to disperse people, the only place we're trying to gather them together is school school rooms and, and actual schools. So we're working, uh, they're working to try and figure out how to do this maybe with only some of the kids in based on their ages, using testing. Uh, but of course, this is a totally new area. And as much as we plan, we could see what happened, for example, with Major League Baseball, where they planned, they tested, and yet they've had to cancel a lot of games because it's been spread amongst the players and the staff. So we're just going to have to play it a little bit by ear because nobody's really sure if all the things we've put into place that in the various school districts are actually going to work. And therefore, the schools are also planning for virtual teaching. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think is really interesting with, with Major League Baseball. I think most people thought when you had that outbreak on the Miami Marlins that that was going to be it. Major League Baseball was going to pull the plug. So I think there's a lot of thought. Will schools do the same thing? Will they, they isolate those students? You know, there's going to be hotspots, there's going to be outbreaks, or would they cancel the school? I think what they're going to do is initially isolate and, you know, restrict classrooms if there's an outbreak. The problem is, especially as you get into, you know, older children, you know, junior high and certainly high school, they go from classroom to classroom. They don't all sit like a third grader in the same room all day. And that will be much more difficult in terms of controlling in a school. 
I think part of it will depend on what the prevalence rate is in the communities. Right now, most of our communities in New York are less than 1%. And probably it's controllable between contact tracing and isolation, etc. The big problem will be when we get further out into the fall, if there is a resurgence and it starts to go up to 3 4 5%, and I know the governor has put in triggers for it, but even before that, it may be that they're going to actually have to close whole schools or maybe even the whole school system. Yeah, That's kind of scary considering you have this elementary school population, which there's growing research now that it does impact kids of a young age. And the more, as time progresses, the more and more we're learning. Do you, do you see some kind of threshold even with the young kids? Well, I think the issue with the young kids is that, first of all, small children are hard to keep masks on. Uh, number two, they like to interact, which is a good part of that. what we're all missing with school. It's great you do virtual teaching, but young children are missing the important roles of socialization which occurs in school, which is very important for their growth both as a person and even intellectually by interacting. So I think that as we learn more, we're going to have to figure out what we do with the small children who also, as we all know, comes the fall, develop every other virus under the sun, and even if, you know, especially if they're not all wearing masks and they start to spread that around, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with COVID or a common, the common cold or a respiratory illness? I never felt comfortable saying children didn't get the disease. I think what we have to feel comfortable is they tend not to get the severe side effects that older people and even adolescents do. And maybe for some reason don't spread it as much, but I don't think we can take the attitude that even small children don't spread the disease. Yeah, uh, pardon the pun on this one, but the school of thought has kind of been with the way people have been social distancing and washing their hands and being more vigilant that maybe we have less colds, uh, a less severe flu season. Well, the evidence is in Australia, which is in the middle of their flu season because it's winter down there, uh, they actually are seeing much less flu than they normally do. Now, we don't know if it's because it's a mild flu year, which flu is very, you know, ups and downs. Or is it because of the fact that everybody is masking social isolation and therefore there's less spreading of the flu? Certainly the masks we're wearing, the surgical or procedure masks, are very effective for preventing flu spreading. Okay? They may be less effective for COVID, but they're certainly very good for, uh, for flu. And as you know, for example, at Northwell, if you cannot or won't take a flu vaccine, you have to wear a mask during the winter months when flu is around. And we feel that's safe for preventing flu spreading to patients. So therefore, if we really enforce wearing of masks during the winter and late fall, we probably will see a milder flu season, which will make it easier both in terms of determining who's got COVID, who doesn't. And also, there is nothing that prevents you from getting both flu and COVID at the same time. And that may be a very serious complication, even for people who don't have pre-existing conditions. We don't know what that combination means yet, but certainly the best would be to avoid it. Wow, so there's a possibility that people could get COVID and the flu at the same time? It is certainly possible. Wow. We don't know if it will occur, but there is no, no proof that it won't. And having two viral illnesses that can affect the respiratory tract at the same time may have greater consequences than either one alone. Yeah, we're, we're still learning so much. And I guess that's probably one of the, the positives about this is that we, we are learning um, and there's still a lot to be learned. And one of the thoughts was in the beginning was that the people who got it 
maybe immune to it, but now we're not so sure about that. Well, we think that they probably are immune, uh, certainly if they had a, a, a really good response to it. Uh, there's no proof yet, but we haven't seen real recurrences occurring. I mean, with the amount of uh, COVID that's been out there, I mean, there are now 5 million cases in the United States, and we've had the world experience. We would think if it's very easy to get it again, we'd already be seeing patients with, with you know, multiple episodes of COVID. The problem is we don't know how long that immunity lasts. Does it last, you know, a season, six months, a year? Uh, does it depend on you know other factors that ind- some individuals will last a short period of time, others it may last a longer period of time? We certainly know when it comes to flu vaccines, for example, we give an you know extra strength dose to older patients because they tend to mount less of an immune response to to, to the vaccine and therefore are more susceptible to flu. We don't know if that's what's going to happen with COVID as well. Yeah. I yeah. think, yep. Well, no, I was just going to say, with the, uh, with the fall upon us and everything you just mentioned, is this really the perfect storm? And does this scare you as a healthcare professional? I don't think the fall in itself scares me. One always worries about history. You know, you know, you don't, you know history repeats itself. And we certainly know in the Spanish flu in 1918, first started in, in the spring, and even though it's called the Spanish flu, it actually occurred first in barracks in an army base in the Midwest in the United States. Um, but the only place that used to report the number of cases was Spain. So therefore, when it spread to Spain, it became the Spanish flu. But their fall was much worse than their spring. Uh, there was a higher rate of spread and a higher rate of mortality. Now, so that's the only thing that concerns us. I think if we do all our due diligence and all the things we put into place now, we monitor, you know, prevalence in communities and then, or in areas, let's say, you know, in New York City versus LA versus Chicago and shut things down again. Although that has negative consequences in terms of people's livelihood, their ability to get supplies, et cetera. If we do it selectively and surgically, so to speak, we may be able to weather this without having to do a general clampdown everywhere. Um, you know, because we've learned a lot. We don't know everything, but we certainly have more experience now than we did in early spring when New York really got affected. Sure. And, uh, you know, information is power here. And you know, that leads us to our next segment that we like to call um, Off Your Chest. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So we were just wondering from your perspective as an expert out there in the field, what, what is some of the misinformation that you've seen that really, really irks you? Well, first of all, there's a, in fact, I've written a little piece with somebody for, uh, that was published in the New York Daily News. The anti-vaxxer movement is really misinformation. Uh, I know people claim that they worry about vaccines, et cetera, but... That's because the very people who are saying that are the people who did not live through the polio epidemic of the 50s, did not live through uh, when measles killed lots of people in the United States uh, because the fact that people, they didn't have a vaccine. So they don't kind of appreciate that. So there's a lot, there's a baseline anti-vaxxer movement, and then you have on top of it disinformation probably other governments trying to ferment that because they don't want to see the United States actually give vaccines. The other thing that concerns me in terms of disinformation is COVID has become a political football. 
Uh, and that concerns me. And I don't care if it's the left, the right, Republicans, Democrats. Everybody should talk with one voice and using science and not jump to conclusions. Um, the literature is still not there about all the proper things to do. And like anything else in medicine and in science, you have to change and adapt. Uh, there are many non-COVID medical conditions we used to treat one way, now we treat it differently. Some where things that we used to do got, you know, uh, we've stated, well, they're not really effective. And now we've gone back to doing them because there's new studies. So if that happens in the general, it's certainly happening in a rapidly evolving situation. If we think about it, COVID really didn't be, you know, start till December, January. And yes, this is August, but it's eight months and we have blood tests. Uh, we have the nasal swabs. They're not perfect, but we have them. We've learned a lot of things to do about this. And there's a lot of active work on vaccines. So, you know, one has to understand that people are not going to be 100% correct on this and pointing fingers every two minutes is not the effective way to do it. So it really is everybody speaking with one voice uh, and really attacking this problem because it's great to make political hay out of it on either side, but the reality is, you know, We've had over you know, 150,000 people, I think 160, close to 160,000 people who have actually died from this. And again, this is only since it really started in New York, let's say, for example, in March. Um, so this is the rapid pace of this disease. And we really need to be more effective fighting it together, much you know, like when people were in World War II, the whole country was behind it. That's the attitude we got to take here. Right. So from your point of view, when the vaccine comes out, in your mind, safe? I think in the United States, we will have a uh, safe vaccine, as safe as we can in the rapid uh, way we're approving it. Uh, very few vaccines have lots of side effects. Uh, and certainly in some ways, this is similar to a vaccine we would have used for flu. Uh, and most of them are safe. And one has to, again, balance if there's a risk of severe effects in one out of a million. But on the other hand, if you get the disease, the mortality rate is 500 out of a million. Then we have to take the risks. Uh, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, and I think that we're, you know, unlike Russia, which is already, as of today, says it's ready to start vaccinating people. That worries me. That's just you can't do the testing fast enough to do that. Right. Uh, and, you know, there's been also been a lot of talk about this magic bullet, hydroxychloroquine. Is it a magic bullet? Is it a cure-all? Well, as a rheumatologist, I've been prescribing hydroxychloroquine for people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis for probably over 30 years. It's a relatively safe drug if not taken with the antibiotic, which may cause heart problems. Um, on the other hand, there has not been really good randomized controlled studies that shows it's effective. But similarly, there haven't been great studies that prove it's totally ineffective. Part of the problem with many of the drugs we've been trying, it's not whether the drug works, it's when you give it. So maybe as a prophylaxis, or maybe in the first three, four days of your symptoms, much like we use Tamiflu for flu, maybe it has some effect. Maybe it doesn't help everybody. Maybe it helps 20 or 30%, and the downside is very little. Nobody's really done that. It's very hard in this type of pandemic to do that. Uh, so 
I don't think it's probably a drug that works, but we've all been surprised later on when we look back and look at data. So I think there are drugs that we're not going to prescribe at this time, but it might be a year from now we say, you know what, it did have an element of truth. And maybe it had an element of truth in this population versus another population, because it's clear that not only is it the comorbidities that people have, like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart problems, there are even people with those things who are older, who get very mild symptoms. And there are other people who don't have those things and may be younger and unfortunately succumb to the disease. So there are factors we don't know, and it may not be that a one single blank check works for everything. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, I mean, we, what about when people talk about some people are anti-mask? I mean, a mask have they, has masks been proven to slow the spread, stop the spread? The only example I can give you where the effectiveness of masks are way at the beginning of this, uh, we mandated at Northwell that staff who were working in the hospitals or in ambulatory areas who are not directly taking care of COVID patients or people suspected of COVID patients still needed to wear surgical masks, the, you know, the procedure masks. And thankfully we found, that, and we just published this in one of the journals, that our staff does not really have a higher rate of COVID positivity in, you know, by antibodies than the communities that they come from. And in fact, in some cases, slightly lower. I truly believe that the mass helped in decreasing. And again, it's not any one thing. Right. The ideal thing is what we're doing. Sure. It's both of us are wearing masks. Right. right. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I do believe it makes a difference uh, and a significant difference. Again, it's not 100%. But if that plus social distancing cuts down your chances, if you're with somebody who is spreading COVID and it cuts it down by 80 or 90%, that's still better than not wearing the mask. Seems like a no-brainer to me, um, which kind of leads to our next uh, segment called Knee-Jerk Reactions. Okay. Let's do it. We want to get your knee-jerk reaction to, we're going to throw out some words and, and, and your quick reaction to frontline workers. Safety. Health system preparedness. Very, very thorough. Federal response to the pandemic. Missteps, but good direction. Flu season. Coming up and we need to be prepared. Unexpected challenges faced during patient surge. Uh, multiple, uh, but taken on uh, with, uh, with good diligence. Telemedicine. Critical part of uh, healthcare today. Do you see it moving forward? I see telemedicine becoming a standard in healthcare. I think it does not replace the actual office visit or on-site visit for two reasons. One is there are certain things that you still need to examine a patient for. Uh, in addition, the art of medicine involves human touch. Just coming to the doctor's office, they taking your blood pressure, listening to your chest, for most patients, provides a sense of reassurance. Maybe it's just historical, but a sense of reassurance because of the laying on the hands that 
we don't see if it's all telemedicine. I think they need to complement each other. It may be for some patients, two-thirds of the visit can be telemedicine and one-third insight. Others the other way, but I think it's a complement to healthcare. All right. Well, Dr. Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to end on a positive note. Tell us what gives you optimism. What gives me optimism is that as bad as it was in early April in New York, we're now at a point that we can all sit outside the proper conditions at a restaurant if we choose. Businesses have started to come back. Uh, and life is not normal, but like all humans, events, we're learning to adapt. And I believe that when vaccines are out there, at some point, we'll all be able to take off our masks. <laughs> Any last suggestions for health systems out there? Any provider input? It's all, the main thing is for you know, providers and health systems, just communicate. Get the word out what you're doing and most importantly, why you're doing it. Awesome. Dr. Jarrett, thanks so much for joining us. For Chris Kazuski. I'm Rob Hoyle. Have a great day.